0: Welcome to Expresso Crime, a podcast all about crimes, short enough to listen to while you enjoy your cup of coffee. Hello, hello. Welcome to a new episode of Expresso Crime. So grab your coffee while we dive into 24 cases of the most interesting and sinister crimes of Rhode Island and Tennessee. Did I say coffee? If you need a new favorite coffee go to, I've got a code for you. Jamie581 at Javi Coffee gives you instant savings That's J-A-I-M-E 50081. So this episode has the youngest serial killer in all of US history, the earliest serial killers in US history, a killer that buried a child alive, one of the last to be executed for piracy, and one of the earliest cold cases in Rhode Island. Someone was falsely um, accused and actually executed and so many more so let's just get right into it and start the list off with a major throwback crime so that is charles gibbs so he was born in newport rhode island november 5th 1798 and was an american pirate he was one of the last active pirates in the caribbean in new york he was convicted of mutiny and murder in 1831 the prosecuting u.s attorneys who tried the case were james alexander hamilton and his assistant philip hamilton both were the sons of statement alexander hamilton who actually talked about his death a couple episodes ago i believe that was for um crimes in new jersey 22nd 1831 he was hanged and he was one of the last to be executed for piracy by the u.s So on the execution note, Rhode Island was one of the earliest states in the U.S. to abolish capital punishment. They did reinstate it again before abolishing it again in 1984. So from 1673 to 1845, the state performed 52 executions. Of those 52, 26 were sailors who were hanged for piracy. And throughout that entire time, a woman has never been executed. Second on the list and one of the earliest cold cases in Rhode Island, this takes us um, back to 1947. On February 1st, 1947, the victim was seen getting into a car with a man who called out her by her name. Her body was uh, later discovered in an area called Lover's Lane. This was behind Slater Park. Her throat had been slashed and she had been stabbed over 30 times. That's so tragic. Third on the list, Raymond Lasser, born in 1963, is an American serial killer. He strangled three women to death and attempted to murder a fourth victim. His span of crimes was just a little over two months in 1984. He became the first criminal to be prosecuted to life without parole. Fourth on the list is Desmond Carter. Desmond Carter, born October 1967, was connected with a 1992 murder and was executed in 2002 by the state of North Carolina. The tie to Rhode Island, though, was that he was born there and he also lived with his grandma as well. So he did move with his other grandma to North Carolina and there he began to use drugs and this was when he was a teen. On March 9, 1992, under the influence of alcohol, Cocaine and tranquilizer, Desmond killed his 71 year old neighbor. He stabbed her 13 times with a butcher's knife and robbed her of $15 to buy more cocaine. Not long before Desmond committed this crime, though, his grandmother had tried to get him into substance abuse and mental health treatment, but the hospital refused because he did not have medical insurance uh, coverage. In July of 1993, he was sentenced to death for first-degree murder and to 40 years imprisonment for robbery with a dangerous weapon. On the eve of his execution, Desmond declined a special meal and said he bought two cheeseburgers, a steak stub, and two Cokes from the prison canteen, which he paid $4.20 from his prison account. He was executed by lethal injection on December 10, 2002. That's another really sad case. Obviously, it's really sad that he's killed someone, but also with the mental health issues and drug abuse, um, it's just all around really sad, but also very crazy. Fifth on the list is Crang Chandler Price. So he was born October 11th, 1973, and is an American serial killer who committed his crimes in Warwick, Rhode Island between the ages of 13 and 15. So he's pretty young. He was arrested in 1989 for four murders committed in his neighborhood where he killed a woman and her two daughters that year, and then he also murdered another woman two years earlier. So he calmly confessed to his crimes after they were discovered. He was arrested a month before his 16th birthday and was tried and convicted as a minor. By law, this meant that he would be released and his criminal record sealed when he turned 21. That's pretty huge. Uh, This case, though, led to changes in state law to allow juveniles to be tried as adults for serious crimes, but they could not be applied retroactively to Price. While incarcerated, he had been charged with additional crimes, including criminal contempt for refusing a psychological evaluation, extortion for threatening a corrections officer, assault, and violation of probation for fighting while in prison. He was sentenced to an additional 10 to 25 years, and that was dependent on how he was with treatment. So Craig Price is the youngest serial killer in U.S. history. Number six on the list, 18-year-old Brian Nisenfield of New Jersey was a freshman at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. One night at the end of January in 1997, Brian called his dad. He said that he was receiving threatening phone calls from a former classmate who he was close to. Uh, and that was in the last semester. So this classmate, Josh Cohen, claimed that he was going to come onto campus anytime he wanted and beat Brian up. The father called campus security to check on his son, and and after an advisor checked on Brian, he said his father was overreacting and that everything was fine. A few days later, on February 6, 1997, Brian was last seen attending his mid-afternoon literature class. After talking with the professor, he walked out and was never seen again. His friends began to get worried when he did not show up for classes the next day and did not contact any of them over the weekend. His friend told security of his disappearance on the following Monday and security finally alerted parents... Of his disappearance on Wednesday, February 12th. That is six days after Brian went missing. That is in it, this is horrible, but the six days waiting is just why? When the police finally were involved, the threatening phone calls were considered but ruled out as not being anything of importance. Six months after he disappeared in August of 1997, a tan boot was discovered on the shore of Hogs Island. Inside was a human foot. A few feet away was a shin bone, later determined to be human. DNA testing concluded that the bones belonged to Brian Nisenfield. Seventh on the list, Christopher Hightower. This is going to be a bit more of a deep dive, but I just feel like we really need the backstory to be able to really deliver this one, so let's get into it. Christopher Hightower, he had a normal life, that wasn't until he discovered his father was actually his stepfather, and this really just set him off. He wanted so badly to be successful and the opposite of his stepbrother, at least that was in his own eyes anyways, Um, he just, as soon as he found out that it was his stepfather, he was very, grew so much resentment towards him, he thought he was just a terrible person, I think anyone else would be like, oh wow, like, he stepped up, that's great, but Basically, he just wanted to be opposite of his stepfather in any way and just be successful. So at 24, he got married. He settled in Rhode Island. He was in college and had two kids. Fast forward a few years, money was tight, and he planned to sell he and his wife's home to get a better start. This was the final straw for her, though, and resulted in divorce. Now, as a 31-year-old, Christopher meets an 18-year-old, and one year later, they get married, settled. They settle in Ohio. His now 19-year-old wife is enrolled in college, and he hopes to also continue his studies. The issue, though, is his grades from Rhode Island are really bad. His solution, and I feel like this is where things just start, a uh, very slippery slope for him. He decides to forge his transcripts, and then he's able to enroll. While in college, he starts a Ponzi scheme. He loses over $100,000 of people's money, but he doesn't get arrested or charged. He definitely has a way with words and forging. (laughs) Now comes time for finals exam to be able to graduate. The home he is living in, it catches fire, but a few possessions, including his school books, are saved. He gets an insurance check, and due to the fire, he was able to get an extension on his final exams. Next thing you know, those safe possessions and school books at his apartment, they catch fire. He goes to college and explains that while the extension was nice, what would really be suitable is no exams at all. I mean, after all, he did just face two fires and he's just under so much stress. The college obviously didn't see things the same way. I mean, I personally am like, okay, so just You happen, your house burns down but the books are saved but then that book just spontaneously catches fire. Okay, and insurance, so this just feels like a lot. Anyways, uh, the college is like, nope, sorry, you need to take your exams. He knows that he cannot get his PhD, which is what he's going for as he won't be able to pass the exams. So what does he do? He forges his PhD, he puts it on his resume and he carries on. Next he says, uh, to his wife's parents that they should buy a home together but then he changes changes it to we'll just buy it for us and we'll pay you back. He's able to talk his way through it though and he does get a really nice house and now they're back in Rhode Island. As the PhD route didn't exactly go as planned, uh, he changes gears and starts an investment firm while teaching Sunday school, his wife also works as the church secretary, which she took over from her mom. So there's definitely a level of trust within their community. Using that trust and connection, he starts a friendship with Ernest Brendel, who is fairly well off. So this Ernest opens and closes an investment account after six months. And this is due to the account losing money, but he didn't make any big deal out of it. He's just like, I'm just going to close it and carry on. A year later, Ernest was convinced to start another investing account. What convinced him was being shown successful accounts by Christopher. The only thing is, though, these were all fake accounts. After Ernest loses even more money, he closes his accounts again, but this time he doesn't just brush it off. He reports Christopher for scam trading, and this really starts a domino effect on Christopher's life to crash. Christopher's business gets evicted. Uh, They repossess everything, the computers, everything, and his wife wants a divorce. This is big as his wife is kind of his meal ticket and her family is pretty well off and things will only get worse for him. So he tells his wife that he has associates and the mob would kill her. She, however, doesn't believe him. She gets a restraining order and he is removed from the house. You go, girl. So Christopher now goes to Ernest and he asks, or rather begs, to have the complaint and investigation removed. Ernest is like, yeah, that's a big nope. Christopher in Ernest's car goes to the sister of Ernest now in Connecticut and he explains that he has his wallet and car as the mob slash mafia took Ernest and now he's needing money to get Ernest back. The sister is seeing some serious red flags but is also seeing a bloody car. The sister calls the FBI and police and from there the police go to Ernest's home but they can't see Ernest, his wife or young daughter. What they do see though is a house that has been recently cleaned really really well. They now go looking for Christopher which they find him again with Ernest car, and they arrest him for stealing the car. In the car the police find blood and white powder which was determined to be lie. Not long after a woman walking a dog finds two shallow graves. The police quickly go to the site and that's when they see the same white powder that was in the car, this is lie and it's used to quickly dissolve a body. Police confirmed the two shallow graves are the Brendel family. Christopher killed the father. He strangled the wife and then he picked up the daughter from school as he was listed as a trusted guardian for pickup. So that didn't raise any flags, red flags with the school. He overdosed the eight-year-old with Benadryl and he buried her alive. After killing the family of 3 acting as Ernest he retracted the complaint to try to stop the investigation like he just keeps going In 1993 he was convicted for the murder of a family of the family of 3 and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole at the time he was only the seventh person in rhode island history to receive life without parole as a sentence for a crime he filed multiple lawsuits against the state to try to appeal his conviction but he lost them all i guess he can't forge anymore so that's really where his issues are right he's just a that's just a very very awful person number eight on the list is adam emory on November 10, 1993, as a 31-year-old, he was convicted of second-degree murder in the death of a 21-year-old man in a road rage incident in Rhode Island. Before formal sentencing, Emery disappeared just, after, just hours after being released on bail. He has never been seen since, and he was declared legally dead in 2004. That was not on prison escapes, but that is Crazy. So ninth on the list is Jeffrey Mailhot. So on July 16, 2004, Jeffrey Mailhot returned home from work and found officers at his home waiting to arrest him. In the interrogation, police asked him if he has ever picked up sex workers. I've seen them around, Mailhot said, but I haven't picked any up. I mean, I picked up a girl I thought I'd seen before. I thought she needed a ride, but then she propositioned me, so I let her out. The police knew otherwise, though. So, Jeffrey Mailhot strangled three young women, dismembering his victims with a saw. Mailhot then t- then tossed the women's remains into trash bags, which he discarded in the area dumpsters. He was sentenced to life in prison on February 15, 2006. Tenth on the list, in 2005, Ronald Fisher, a former doctor, was convicted of sexually assaulting a woman on his yacht, and this wasn't the first time this had happened, though. In 1996, he pled guilty to two felony counts of assault and battery. He received a -a two-and-a-half-year suspended sentence and five years probation. The twist on this occasion, though, is five days before the conviction, Ronald Fisher emailed his lawyers the following— Although I believe my trial has gone very well and expect to be acquitted and dismissed, the small chance of losing could carry extremely and unacceptably harsh penalties. I have therefore decided not to take any risks and to leave the U.S. and enjoy life in another country where I have long been carefully planning a good, safe, secure, and comfortable life. He has not been seen since and remain on Rhode Island's Most Wanted." 11 on the list is Esteban Carpio. So in April 2005, he was being questioned by police for the stabbing of an 85-year-old woman. The one detective left the interview room to get water for him and he was left with the second police detective in the room. There, Esteban took the gun of the police detective James Allen and shot him twice, killing him. He then jumped out of the window, but he was apprehended 45 minutes later. June 27, 2006, a jury found Esteban Carpio guilty of the murder of Detective Allen and the stabbing of the 85-year-old woman. The jury rejected his insanity defense and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. 12th on the list, this is an unsolved case and takes place on October 2014 when an 80-year-old Navy veteran was violently attacked and killed in his home. Earlier that evening, he was last seen at the American Legion Post. That is just so sad. 13th on the list and definitely not complete without mentioning them is the patriarca crime family so they're also known as the new england mafia or the boston mafia so they are an italian american mafia family there's so much history in rhode island and boston with them um dating so far back they are just There's a lot of history there and I had to mention them. I didn't want to list too much stuff about them only because I find um, more of the serial killer unsolved. That's kind of more of interest, but definitely had to mention them. Starting Tennessee off with a bit about executions, the first person executed was Julius Morgan. He was born in 1894 and was executed on July 13th, 1916. So he was an American criminal who was the first prisoner ever executed by the electrical chair in Tennessee after being convicted for the rape of a 20-year-old woman. Most recently executed was Nicholas Todd Sutton. He was an American serial killer who was responsible for murdering two acquaintances and his own grandmother in 1979. He was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for these crimes. He then later participated in a 1985 prison killing over drugs and that led to his uh, death sentence. Tennessee has executed 31 people from 1916 to 1929 and 13 people have been executed from 2000 to now. And now onto the rest of the list, With more of a throwback crime is Micah Big Harp. He was born Joshua Harper and was born between 1768 and Wiley Little Harp, born William Harper. They were murderers, highwaymen, and river pirates who operated in Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, and Mississippi in the late 18th century. They are often considered the earliest documented serial killers in U.S. history. Next on the list is Colin Montgomery Baker. He was born June 23, 1835 and was a Tennessee-born desperado whose gang terrorized Union soldiers and civilians in northeast Texas, southwest Arkansas, and northwest Louisiana during the early days of the American Old West. His gang is alleged to have killed hundreds of people in the years following the American Civil War though these numbers are probably inaccurate, and the actual number is between 50 and 60. Fifth on the list, between 1919 and 1926, there was a murderer on the loose in East Tennessee who assaulted more than 40 people between 1919 and 1926, usually striking homes without electricity. Some of these incidents would occur on the same night, and a total of eight people were murdered throughout this time. Although the case has never been solved, there were suspects. First, an African-American politician named Maurice Mays would be unjustly accused and eventually executed for the crimes in 1919. Meanwhile, after he was executed, the attacks would continue. A man named William Shelley went to trial three times but was acquitted in the summer of 1926. He left to start a new life outside of Tennessee. After that the killings stopped and so did the media attention and the investigations. Number 6 on the list is George Kelly Barnes, born July 18th, 1895, and he was better known as Machine Gun Kelly. He was an American gangster from Memphis, Tennessee, and active during the Prohibition era. He is best known for the kidnapping of oil tycoon and businessman Charles Yuchel in July of 1933 from which he and his gang collected a $200,000 ransom. So Charles Ushel, though, had collected and left a ton of evidence that assisted the FBI investigation afterwards, which would eventually lead to Kelly's arrest in Memphis on September 26, 1933. His crimes also included bootlegging and armed robbery, and he spent 20 years in jail at the Alcatraz Prison before his death in 1954, where he died on his birthday, which I think he's been on a list before. And every single time, him dying on his birthday fascinates me more than his life in crime. Wow. So, as the list goes, we're only in 1954. We have some serious throwback crimes. I feel like Tennessee has such a rich history in crime. That is a lot of very old crimes going on, and let's move on to seventh on the list. Beginning in 1965, Nashville residents were on edge as a killer was on the loose. They were targeting girls and women across the city. On July 16th, 1965, an 11-year-old was visiting uh, her sister to babysit, and that's when she was attacked in her bed and dragged outside. There, she was beat with a pipe or hammer and then choked with her own pajamas. She was found unconscious by her sister and brother-in-law in in an alley outside their home. She died two days later at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. A task force of 25 officers were created. Uh, They scoured the city as they looked for the killer. A bloody shirt and undergarments were found the next day, and this evidence was taken to the FBI for processing. They questioned a 22-year-old former nightclub bouncer and accused rapist who also lived in the same area, a man who confessed and recounted twice, and others in the days and weeks that followed. Rewards were offered up, but nothing came from the investigation. Just six months later, a 14-year-old was stabbed in the heart as she slept in her bed, with her twin sister. Her older brother sleeping in the other room was woken up and went on to the sister's room to check. There he saw someone walking past the window. They appeared to be laughing, he said. Her nine-year-old sister also woke up to go to the bathroom and saw someone standing over her sister's bed. She was terrified and ran back to her bed. Police canvassed the neighborhood, but they were left without a clue as to who the killer could be. Four years later, a 12-year-old was walking to a roller dome when she disappeared. Three days later, she was found sexually assaulted and choked to death in an overgrown field. Her roller skates were found nearby. Her hands were bound behind her and her socks were stuffed down her throat. Police believe she was held captive for a few days before she was killed. Officers questioned more than 75 suspects. During the investigation, three men even confessed to the crime, but each was believed to be publicity stunts. Another 20 men were also given lie detector tests. In 1977, police thought they caught the perp. They charged Edward Warner Adcox, who had worked at the roller rink at the time. He had been previously jailed for sexually assaulting a girl in North Carolina. And was later convicted in Nashville of sexually assaulting an eight year old boy. Prosecutors dropped the charges before the case was prevented. presented to a grand jury, citing problems with witnesses. In the late 1990s, the police did think they had their guy, but they lacked enough evidence to arrest him. A month before the first girl was killed in her bed, the girl who lived across the street was nearly snatched from her bedroom. An unknown person tried to pull her out of the window, but she screamed and he released her. Just a few months after the murder of the third girl, a 12-year-old girl disappeared. She was found bound and gagged Gagged in March 1970, she said a man came into her house, hit her over the head, and took her to a field near her home. More than 50 years later, the killer or killers remained free. That is a really hard cold case. Eighth on the list is Pete Bondurant Jr. and his twin brother, Pat Bondurant, so they're also known as the Bondurant boys, and they are now 58 years old. The brothers were convicted in two murders they committed separately, Pat in the 1986 beating to death his co-worker Ronnie Gaines, Pete was charged with helping his brother dismembering and burning Gaines' body, and Pete in the killing of his girlfriend Terry Lynn Clark, also in 1986. The brothers were convicted in 1991 of the murder of Gwen Duggar after a trial in which Pat's wife Denise testified against them. Duggar's body was never found, but Denise testified that the brothers raped, tortured, and shot the young mother before burning her body in a 55-gallon drum and dumping the ashes in a creek near Pat's rented farmhouse. Pete has been released in December of 2016, and Pat's release date isn't until 2070. Ninth on the list, three members of the Lilliad family were murdered on April 6, 1997. The parents aged 34 and 28 along with their six-year-old daughter. This took place on a deserted road during a carjacking. The two-year-old did survive the shooting but was disabled due to it. Six young people from Kentucky, including two minors, were convicted of felony murder for the deaths of the three, with all six perps receiving three life sentences and additional sentence of 25 years for the attempted murder of the two-year-old. That is really, really sad. 10th on the list is Paulus Dennis Reed Jr. He's born November 12, 1957, and is also known as the fast food killer. He was an American serial killer, convicted, and sentenced to death for seven murderers during three fast-food restaurant robberies in between the months of February and April, 1997. At the time of the murders, he was on parole from a 1988 conviction in Texas on charges related to aggravated armed robbery of a Houston steakhouse. He had served seven years of a 20-year sentence and was paroled in 1990. His execution was stayed several times in the years following, including an instance in 2003, just hours before he was scheduled for execution. He eventually waived his right to appeal and then was executed. 11th and last on the list, on August 12, 2010, Lydia Gatorrez was suffocated and stabbed to death in her apartment, while her two sons, who were just one and two, were in the home just nearby. So her eight-year-old son found her upon returning from school. He found her with multiple stab wounds in her neck, head, and upper torso, and a plastic bag was also over her head. Upon finding her, the eight-year-old gathered his two little brothers and ran to a neighbor who called police. Two knives were still in her neck when police arrived at the scene. The case is now cold. That is a really, really sad and just eerie case. It is so just... The element of the two kids being in the home when she was stabbed and killed. They're just one and two just babies. And then eight years old, so young to be finding your mom like that, having to gather up your little brothers and find help. Um, and then, of course, now the case is cold. That one is just super eerie and just... Oh. So that wraps up today's episode, Crimes by State for Rhode Island and Tennessee. A little bit longer as we had to deep dive a few of those cases. Thank you for listening. And we will actually be back before the Sunday Scaries on Tuesday with a bonus episode first. So thank you for listening and see you Tuesday and then again on Sunday. Bye for now.